listening to CodesCast, a podcast from the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University. Vous écoutez CodesCast, un podcast du Centre d'histoire orale et de récits numérisés à l'Université Concordia. For this episode of CodesCast, I talked to Carolina Cambray, Assistant Professor in Education at Concordia University. Welcome to CodesCast. Thank you. Can you introduce yourself? Okay, well, first of all, I think this is a great idea, so thank you for having me here. Um, my name is Maria Carolina Cambray, or I also publish under just Carolina Cambray. I'm <clears throat> originally from Argentina, Buenos Aires, and I do do some research there. I teach in the Department of Education and in the Huma Interdisciplinary PhD. Awesome. Uh, and can you tell me a little bit about your work? Yes. Um, My research situates itself at the crossroads of uh, pedagogy and policy, visual sociology, and qualitative methods. Uh, so I have two recurrent topics uh, that have been central to my work over the years, and one of those is the social and cultural work that images do, um, especially pedagogically and politically, and the question around the limits of methodological approaches. Uh, yeah. Great. Uh, do you have a project you're working on right now? I have a number of projects right now. Um, I have a project in Argentina uh, called Nomadic Pedagogies uh, that is based in and around a school for um, itinerant people to obtain grade six level reading and writing so that they can um, get work. And I have a project, a book project on selfies. Cool. Oh, and I have another project on digital literacies, um, which is an analysis of digital and media literacy teaching across universities in Canada for uh, teacher education programs. So, you know, Is anyone actually training teachers how to do this? Does anyone know what it is? We'll see. <laughs> uh, and what brought you to codes, or how does your work relate to oral history? Well, I participated in a conference um, about 10 years ago, organized by Dr. Stephen High on oral history. Uh, here and I co-presented with a professor of mine at the time, Chris Fletcher, and we presented on digital storytelling in the visual anthropology classroom. So we presented that, we did some poster work on that, I've done a lot of workshops and presentations on digital storytelling um, in the north and in different parts of Canada, and have I done it anywhere else? I can't remember. And Uh, we published an article about digital storytelling that has gotten quite a bit of attention, so it just keeps popping up all the time. Great. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, what got you interested in that topic? Um, well, it was part of our course in visual anthropology. Mm -hmm. So digital storytelling was something that we had to do as one of our assignments. And then I joined... Dr. Fletcher as a research assistant and we engaged in exploring the potentials of digital storytelling in education and beyond sort of as a pedagogical tool and beyond 
and I gave some workshops in Fort McMurray mm-hmm. in northern Alberta um, with different people from Cree and Blackfoot and Métis uh, backgrounds that showed me that this was quite an important approach for people in terms of hearing their own story in their voice and with their breath breathing through it. And I think breath um, came to signify something about the liveness of the story for me. I don't know if we included that in the article, <laughs> but it was uh, it was very powerful in that way. And so I often in my in my classes after that, when I worked with in Alberta with um, different populations coming off reserve and stuff like that. I always included options for doing digital storytelling uh, because I, I did understand that this was um, a profound way for people not only to experience or share experience, but also to have a shareability factor in what they're making or doing at school. So, for example, I had on different occasions, different students... Uh, come and tell me that they had taken these stories back to their home communities and shared them with different family members who found them very important. Mm. And I also um, taught the process in workshops with um, Dr. Weber Pilwax, who's a Cree elder, a Cree Métis elder in Alberta, and um, who was very interested in using this in her Indigenous Research Methodologies class with her students. So it's kind of gone on from there and taken on a a life of its own in in sort of those kinds of ways and becoming an indigenized form. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I was interested in what you're talking about in, with the, uh, storytelling through breath. Can Mm -hmm. you elaborate on that a little bit? What does that mean? Well, if you're not breathing, you're not alive. (laughs) So I, I, I don't know, unless you're, I don't know what you're doing, osmosis or something. I don't know, you're a plant. Well, plants are breathing. So um, the power of the breath comes through in the digital storytelling. People don't edit out um, their breaths. And it carries weight. Uh, so, for example, this particular... A professor who's also an elder told a story reflecting on a lake that her father would always take her to and this digital story only had two or three photos in it but it was deep meditative reflections that bring together time and space in many kinds of ways and she included you know different kinds of breath you could hear um, you could hear it. You could hear the texture of it. Um, and so the, my own personal interpretation was that that's why it's more alive as a method. I mean, I never, we never talked about it. <laughs> it was just my personal interpretation that, that breath was carrying the story. Mm. So the life force is there in that sense, in, in a very different sense than when you read something written on a page, right? That it's, it's more dead there. Yeah, very true. Something else I'm wondering if you could reflect on is, I'm wondering how 
uh, research creation and oral history or digital storytelling could work together or how you see those connections being made? Yeah, well, um, I haven't done a lot of work in oral history, but I've done quite a bit of digital storytelling work. And I think that uh, the embodied approach helps have it helps give it some communication with research creation. At the same time, um, you know, it's a data collection technique, right? In many ways. So it's one piece of a giant research puzzle. Um, so you can approach it in research creation ways. Um, and what I mean by that is you're not just collecting images. You're also creating, creating stories and creating images that do something. So if I was going to think about digital storytelling as research creation, I would do, I would create or intervene in images in creative ways that work to further the research in some kind of way. So it's not, it, it's not just about collecting people's stories. Um, it's, it's about in what ways is there a creative desire here that also is research, right? So it's not, you know, I'm going to have an art component to my thing, or I'm going to go, you know, multimedia to my thing. That's, that's really not research creation. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, and I took some pictures. That's not research creation, right? <laughs> so, I mean, digital storytelling, like any approach, can be used in a research creation-oriented way, and it can also be used in a purely data-driven way. You know, I'm going to collect these narratives in these ways with images and I'm going to apply this sort of way of analyzing them and that's it. And that's not research creation. So for me, it's all in, in, in the approach and the sensitivity that the researcher has an understanding of what research creation is. Great. That's where I am on that. Thanks for that. That's really interesting. Everyone at the center comes from a different background mm -hmm. and is doing oral history or digital storytelling in their own way. Mm -hmm. And how is that contributing to whatever a milieu ah, okay. in which this work is happening? Well, if you see the work on oral history and digital storytelling as a kind of global collage, we're all contributing to the body of that. And just as people interview differently, you have the different inflections, the different priorities, the different foci that people, and then the different sort of evaluative processes, what worked, what didn't work, and sort of in those kinds of ways, you can learn from uh, from your work, from other people's work of, of, oh, it works in these kinds of ways, but not in those kinds of ways, in those kinds of situations, but similar to interviewing, you know, and of course, Digital storytelling can't really take it everywhere. You have to have some technology. Yeah. At least a cell phone, right? At least cell phones. And uh, I think that one of the problems for me, living in Canada, living in the West, in a very privileged sort of context, is that we often forget that 
to a lot of people, these are not things they have access to, and these are not ways that they can adapt to very easily in terms of, you know, being able to manipulate the photos in a software or whatever it is, right? So all those skills that are part of the package of that also impact the outcomes, right? Because there are certain places in the world that this would be impossible to do. So there are um, access issues. Totally, I think that's a really good point. Is that something you've encountered in your work in Argentina? Well, for example, um, I've just started talking to some trans women in Mochacelis, which is the first school for trans people in the world. Um, and it's basically a few floors assigned of a sort of semi-abandoned building near a cemetery, actually, but it's very central in, in Buenos Aires. But it, it was a very important move because um, trans people are often treated very badly in the education system and uh, expelled or, or whatever. And in that school, there are no computers. Um, and there is no internet either. So people have their cell phones, but, you know, in terms of putting things together, I mean, you really have to sort of lug. Every, I mean, I would have to bring a mobile lab or I would have to have really good cell phones and ways for people to communicate those things on and off of their cell phones. And I mean, everyone uses WhatsApp there. So people are communicating all the time and you can do voice recordings and collect those voice recordings, but it's, it's a much less concentrated editing procedure as when you have a real reflection on a set of photos as a head in Alberta, or you have a narrative driven scenario. So um, actually it might be, it might work out just fine to have people do it on their cell phones um, in some kinds of ways. But I, I then would need ways to store this and communicate. I mean, there are all kinds of logistical issues of things that are just not available. And that's a really big city where people have phones. Right, so I I have, I'm I'm connected to another project. In uh, in Uganda, um, that's outside the big cities, out in some of the villages, and people do have the cell phones as well, but these are different kinds of cell phones. These are not these big smartphones. You know what I mean? So, also when we think about mobile technology, uh, not everyone has the same capacity of their phone. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. And I actually think that kind of answers the question of how can your work influence what this field or the center is becoming, right? Is what if you did a, a project in a different context and how would the realities of that place influence the field or how people go about um, doing digital storytelling work? Well, I think in particular with um, the trans women, it's um, it's about being sensitive to their voices and telling their story, and it's not a story that I can tell. So this is where digital storytelling would be sort of a key intervention, where people could craft their narrative, control their presentation. And I would be one step removed from that, and that would be really important ethically for me. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, 
right. Well, thank you so much for talking with My me. My pleasure. Codescast was produced by me, Sadie Couture, and Maeva Thibault. Original idea by Marie-Anne Gagnon, supervised by Stéphane Martelli. Original music for Codescast was composed by Jacob Lassard 